electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Welcome to The Exchange. Weakness feeds on weakness. That's the warning from Fed Chair Powell today as he calls on Congress to act and act quickly on COVID relief. We'll have the latest and the market impact. Plus, tacos and coffee, where teens are and aren't spending their money this year and the stocks most affected by that. And September surge. Retail is rebounding from a week back to school season. A top analyst joins us with the biggest winners from this bit breakout. But first, let's get to the markets. And Dom Chu kicks things off for us with those numbers. Hi, Dom. That survey, I got to tell you, I don't know where these teens are buying Louis Vuitton handbags, but I can't really figure out. Anyway, let's talk about what's happening with the markets right now. The Dow Industrial is up 100 points. It's not bad given the massive rally that we saw yesterday, but still the session high was 135. So we're not far from there. However, the Nasdaq has been underperforming, currently off one-tenth of one percent, due in large part to the underperformance or lagging today of those mega-cap tech stocks like Microsoft and Apple. They're not exactly keeping pace with other parts of the market. Speaking of those other parts of the market, these are some of the hot spots, especially over the last couple of weeks. Check out what's happening with the Russell 2000 small-cap index on a one-week basis. It is now up 7%. By the way, if that particular ETF goes up a little bit higher from here, it will take out and be at the best levels since before the COVID-19 pandemic. So watch those small caps. Bank stocks on a tear up 12%. Yes, they've been underperforming, but still it gets going on some shopping lists. And cloud computing up 4%. It's been a big theme so far this year. Continuing strength there. That orange line, though, is still a big upside move. And then take a look at this. The reflation trade. Folks looking at some of these beaten up stocks that do well in an economic recovery. Names like Royal Caribbean, yes, beaten up, travel and leisure sucks, but up 6% today. Oil services, Halliburton, up 3%. Tapestry Retail, the company formerly known as Coach, up 4%. And Martin Marietta, they make concrete, asphalt, up almost 4% as well. So watch some of those cyclical names that have been beaten up as of late. Those are names to watch in case they do go higher from here on economic recovery hopes. Kelly, I'll send things back over to you. Yep, you were talking about bulldozers yesterday, Dom. Today it's concrete. We can we can see the theme here. We're going to talk a lot more about it. Thank you, sir. Talk about stimulus, hopes, infrastructure plans, why people are bidding up these sectors of the market. But first, let's talk about some of these moves in bond yields lately with the 30-year hitting its highest level since June. The whole curve, I think it's also steepening at the same time. The 10-year, 0.77%. Now Rick Santelli with more for us. Rick? Absolutely, Kelly. You're right. The curve's steepening no matter what combination you pick. Twos, tens, fives, thirties, uh, tens, thirties. Uh, twos, tens obviously is the most looked at by many investors. But the story is you look at intraday of, of 10 year and 30 year is the fact that take what Dom's talking about with regard to reflation. Add in the notion that even though there's partial closures and everything isn't just right, we continue to see many of the numbers improving, maybe not fast enough. But when you add in the notion that this is going to be a demand-led recovery once we're ahead of COVID, it makes sense of reflation trade. And as you look at yields of 10s and 30s on the combined chart at the highest level since early June, 
What really is the issue here is testing the waters to see if the Fed ultimately pushes back. They've gone out of their way to say they don't want to nudge the market too much, especially if interest rates start responding to true economic fundamentals. Whether that's completely true with regard to quantitative easing, only time will tell. Rick, I also want to mention, you know, this morning we got that trade deficit number and it was a jaw dropper. We basically saw, you know, the biggest uh, monthly trade deficit that we've seen in several years time and one of kind of tied for one of the, the worst that we've seen in the last couple of decades. But the interesting thing about this as well is that sometimes the bad deficit is because we're importing more than we're exporting. And that's a sign of economic vitality, if you will. So I, I don't know if we tie it all together that way, but I was surprised there wasn't a bigger reaction. And I think a lot of people are saying, look, if anything, this would put more downward pressure on the dollar, right? Yes, and downward pressure there is on the dollar, and you're exactly right. Imports are filling up the empty inventory tank. You know, COVID, of course, drained inventories, and other economies haven't recovered spectacularly well, so the exports are lagging a bit. And you can tell, if you add today's import-export numbers, $172 billion and just shy of $240 billion, you come up with around $410 billion. That's well below the addition of imports and exports pre-COVID. But, yes, this is the second biggest deficit going back to record keeping in 92 and i exactly agree with you it is a statement about horsepower trying to rebuild inventories in front of the holidays all right rickster thank you we appreciate it rick santelli and we can't talk econ without bringing in steve leesman uh, he's also here with some comments that the fed chair jay powell just made about the economy and his call for more stimulus in particular uh, steve here with all the headlines for us hello sir Hey, Kelly, yeah, very specific. Fed Chair Jay Powell told the National Association for Business Economics today that the economic recovery is progressing more quickly than expected, but the U.S. has an incomplete recovery. Powell said there was a risk that the pace of recovery could slow, indeed already has since May and June, and that could lead to the likely need for additional support. But he made clear that additional support, he thinks, should come at least in part from the fiscal side. We can help, but, you know, clearly uh, this is not something that monetary and policy and supervision of banks and financial stability and payments is is can do all by itself those are the jobs that we have clearly we have and we've said this from the beginning this this will be uh, a work of all of government in the first instance from the health authorities but then from from fiscal authorities Powell said the recovery would be stronger if the monetary and fiscal sides worked together and that the risk was doing too little, not doing too much. His biggest concern, a slowing pace of recovery could trigger typical recessionary dynamics where weakness creates more weakness. On other aspects of the economy, he said business investments on a renewed upward path. That's very good news. And financial markets have returned to more normal functioning. At the same time, he said a more realistic unemployment rate probably close to 11% when you include the decline of participation compared to the 7.9% official rate. And he said the downturn has hurt low-income workers, low-wage workers, women and minorities the hardest. Overall, Powell saying the outlook was highly uncertain and the outcome, of course, depending upon the course of the virus, Kelly. You know, Steve, Stephanie uh, was making an interesting point last hour about how the markets are, seem to be anticipating more stimulus either way. Either we get it before the election on some kind of pelosi minutian compromise, or we get it after the election uh, once that is settled one way or the other. I mean, do you think that's right? I mean, how important is the Fed seems to be really pushing on Congress to act and act quickly. Um, you know, do you think that it, it's true that we might get a bill either way here? 
I do. I mean, I think that for sure, if there's a Democratic Senate with a Democratic uh, president, you'll definitely get more stimulus. And I think that there's also a possibility that happens uh, before the election as well. Um, I think there's a concern, though, Kelly, about timing. Uh, it's well to remember, and, and you've looked at this as long as I have, really, this that the idea that fiscal stimulus always comes late. That was not the case in the spring. And we had some much better outcomes. And I think it's well for people to remember that those outcomes were better because the, the, the stimulus was not only large, but very well timed. By now, we're going to have probably a couple months where some of that stimulus is wearing off. We saw that in the personal income numbers in the last uh, um, uh, report we got, and we saw some decline in spending coming up on the Christmas season. And a lot is going to depend upon how flush people feel with how much they're going to spend. Yeah, and a lot of focus on whether the recession, you know, the technically the recession is over, but has kind of this new recession just started, this post-relief recession, you know, now, this now, kind wait, of wait, 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 Kelly, starting Kelly, in, wait a yeah. second, you, you <laughs> know on, you can't over. call that it's until over. we have Jim Paterba on yeah. and the National Bureau of Economic <laughs> Research, they're the ones who called it, but yes, technically in terms of having reached the trough, we're almost certainly expanding from the trough, but officially we have to wait till we have NBER call it. Yeah, but I wonder if it's sort of double dip. Anyway, well, well, that's for another time. But Steve, thank you very much in the meantime, bringing us all right. those headlines. Pleasure. We appreciate it. Steve Leisman. Let's get some more market reaction to those headlines and also the fate of COVID relief. I'm joined by Jeff Mortimer now. He's director of investment strategy at BNY Mellon Wealth Management. Ernesto Ramos is also here and he's head of equities at BMO Global Asset Management. So Jeff, I'll turn to you and we've seen, you know, strong performance in materials and industrial stocks and even some of the banks lately. I think the bank stocks are up 10%. You have yields on the rise. Would you tie all of that to uh, prospects for more uh, COVID stimulus? Uh, potentially. It's always hard to know. We've had a couple of head fakes on a value over growth uh, since the March 23rd low. We'll have to see if this one holds. But certainly, as you get later and later and closer to the uh, perhaps better therapeutics, even a vaccine, for example, that you have to think at some point in time, market participants will begin to shift away from those uh, stocks, which did well when the, the work from home themes and broader, you know, broader telemedicine, those types of things and move more to those stocks, which will do well when the overall economy recovers. So I, we, we are positioning for both with our clients and you may, be, you may be at the beginning perhaps of a more normal growth value move where both, both types of stocks participate as the market moves higher. That's healthy by the way, for a market which begins sure. in a bull phase and then ages. Well, investors like a scenario in which nothing loses, right? You can have growth going up, Correct. you can have value going up. Uh, Ernesto, how would, you know, same question to you. Do you see more risks out there in any particular asset classes? Well, I mean, you want to stay in, invested in equities right now because there's no question about the fact that the liquidity injection that the Fed has, has put into the system has, has really driven asset prices higher. We are a little bit more cautious, however, at BMO on the particular sectors of the market. We, we think it might be a little earlier to make the call on cyclical, simply because there's so much uncertainty as to the path of the recovery from COVID because it is a medical after all event and we really don't know how, how it will evolve and when, for example, will we have enough of the population uh, 
vaccinated so that we, we have achieved the immunity and we can call ourselves back in a more normal environment. And also, by the way, some of the destruction in the labor market that we're seeing will be permanent, is becoming permanent. So the, too much uncertainty on the, on the path to recovery. So therefore, we want to be a little bit more defensively oriented and, and still exposed to more defensive sectors such as uh, uh, grocery retailers and uh, companies such as AutoZone and, and, and companies that do not depend on on the economic recovery continuing because it may flatten out as as Chairman Powell pointed yeah. out in his testimony today. Yeah. Jeff, I want to turn back to you as we kind of figure out how this timing of relief may tie into the timing of the election. I mean, this has been a theme we're hearing you know, all day here, but you're among those who think that markets aren't properly discounting the prospect of a blue wave. You know, the, the Democrats taking the White House and the Senate. Uh, most people say knee-jerk, that just means slightly lower equity prices. But would the clarity, even if that was the outcome, trump uh, the declines that we might see in the market? It's it's always hard to know. There's a lot of variables, including, of course, COVID-19, which I think trumps all others. If you tell me the, the state of the virus, I'll tell you how the economy and the market is doing. So we have to take that into account. But I think, you know, who wins the presidency? I, I'm writing uh, my monthly newsletter within our client base, and we are it is all about the election. That's where all the client questions are coming. So you're, you're hitting the nail on the head. We have to remember that markets do discount the most likely outcome, and they do it immediately. So let's be cautious of thinking about uh, current pricing and the fact that a blue wave may come. Uh, I think markets are perhaps discounting uh, a high probability, perhaps, of a Biden presidency. But I think the Senate is still sort of up in the air. It's interesting um, listening um, to Steve Leisman talk about, uh, you know, when the timing of that uh, stimulant may come, whether pre or post-election. Markets have been discounting, I think, some stimulant for quite some time. And I think have been a little disappointed. But as news of it uh, uh, sort of reaches a fever pitch, markets rally on that news. So I think... As long as yeah. you get it eventually, I think markets will sort of maintain these levels, knowing that eventually it will come, whether it's pre or post and exactly the level. I don't think markets much care. I think that it comes and that the Fed remains on, on the market side is also things that, that continue to support market levels. All right. Well, we'll keep an eye on all of those particularly sensitive parts of the market with rates, uh, materials, industrials, some of those other names. Have to leave it there, guys. Jeff Mortimer, Mortimer and Ernesto Ramos. We do appreciate it, though. Uh, thanks for joining me today. Got to take a quick break, but still coming up, it's chicken, carne asada and coffee where teens are spending their money these days. But they're spending less this year. We're going to look at the stocks helped and hurt the most by that. Plus, home prices are rising very quickly. Is it time to worry that they're climbing too quickly? That and lots more are still ahead here on The Exchange. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back. Some breaking news out of Washington. Let's head to Kayla Tausche. What's going on, Kayla? 
Kelly, several top military brass, including the Joint Chiefs of Staff, are all quarantining now after exposure to one of the top officials from the U.S. Coast Guard, Admiral Charles Ray, the vice commandant of the Coast Guard. According to a statement provided by the Department of Defense to CNBC, uh, the Pentagon says we are aware that Vice Commandant Ray has tested positive for COVID-19 and that he was at the Pentagon last week for meetings with other senior military leaders. Some meeting attendees included other service chiefs. It goes on to say that the Pentagon is conducting additional contact tracing and, and taking appropriate precautions. So far, uh, there have been no additional positive tests or symptoms exhibited and that they will let us know if that changes. Kelly. Kayla, there's nothing on the surface of this that would suggest an obvious connection uh, about where he got it. He wouldn't have been at that Supreme Court uh, nomination ceremony or anything like that. Admiral Ray was not at the Supreme Court nomination ceremony, but there are reports out there that he was at the White House the following day. On the president's schedule the Sunday after that ceremony for Amy Coney Barrett, there was a reception at the White House for members of Gold Star families. Uh, we have not been able to confirm Admiral Ray's attendance at that event, but there are reports that he was at the White House a week ago Sunday uh, for some reason and that perhaps that is where he contracted this virus. And as you said, then he went to the Pentagon where he could have presumably exposed other military leaders? Correct. And uh, the statement from the Pentagon says that that includes uh, other service chiefs. And now uh, we know that members of the Joint Chiefs of Staff are all quarantining after that possible exposure. All right. Kayla, thank you very, very much. Kayla Tausche in Washington with that news for us. Let's turn to how COVID-19 has changed consumer behavior across many industries in the meantime. That includes the fast food space where there are several companies really trying to embrace this change and make the most of it. Kate Rogers is here with a look at who is doing what to adjust to this new normal. Kate? Hey, Kelly. Well, we've seen delivery and pizza players like Papa John's and Domino's really take off during this time. But other restaurants are leaning into carry out and drive through concepts as consumer preferences shift. Starbucks is opening both smaller and to go stores and more stores with drive throughs in suburban areas in the next 12 to 18 months. This summer, Burger King revealed its smaller format stores that will have drive in options, pickup lockers and curbside delivery options. Taco Bell also has a smaller mobile store with parking spots for contactless curbside pickup and a lane to prioritize those who order by its app. And finally, Shake Shack also working on its Shack Track stores with drive through lanes and carry out windows. In August, when more restaurants were reopened, drive through visits actually represented 37% of all restaurant visits, according to the NPD group. And off-premise, of course, remains popular as concerns and restrictions regarding on-premise remain. Kelly, back over to you. Yep, more than ever this time of year. It starts to get chilly. Kate, thank you. Our Kate Rogers. Now, speaking of fast food, Piper Sandler is out with its biannual taking stock with Teens Report. Teen spending this fall, they found, is at its lowest level in 20 years. And that includes restaurants where teens spend a fifth of their dollars. For more on where Gen Z is and isn't spending right now, I'm joined by Nicole Miller-Reagan, senior research analyst at Piper Sandler. Nicole, it's great to have you. And the biggest um, little he biggest little headline uh, to me was the fact that Starbucks is slipping a little bit here. Uh, what do you make of that? Yeah, Starbucks has been the um, most preferred publicly traded concept. Of course, that's not how teens identify with brands. So when you back it up at the highest level, Chick-fil-A is number one, followed by Starbucks. Starbucks had been for a very long time a double-digit share, double-digit mind share um, in terms of results. 
it is now down to the high single digits. And I think some of that share goes to Chick-fil-A and there's a notion of it's about chicken, but it's equally about being able to be on premise, obviously pre-pandemic and, and, the, and the, the real coffee and ice beverages that they've worked, worked on. And also Duncan. Duncan has been gaining share with this cohort that they otherwise weren't so um, successful at tapping into. Yeah, I thought that was fascinating that the flip side of the coin is Duncan's rise. So from the stock point of view, I mean, do you walk away from this and think, you know, hey, maybe Duncan's better positioned for the next generation? Or does this reflect kind of a, a frugality and a lack of ability to hang out at Starbucks just for the time being? It's more than just this disruptive period. We saw the change for Duncan in a positive reflection in mind share a couple of survey cycles ago. And it's both the espresso-based beverages and cold beverages, which aren't so replicable at home. And it's also the snack items. You know, the teens aren't pulling in for drip coffee and a breakfast sandwich at that time of day. So that gives them the day part they're looking to to utilize. And then the influence of uh, social media, and in fact, celebrities on social media seems to resonate with teens as well. So Duncan has three factors working, working for them. And can perhaps continue to work for them. It's interesting. Meanwhile, you'll have to, I guess, watch Starbucks to see how they respond. You also, uh, the survey pointed out Chipotle kind of doing well vis-a-vis Taco Bell. And I wanted to ask you about McDonald's, where speaking of using social media or kind of appealing to teens, I mean, this Travis Scott meal that they did has just been a huge success. They're, they're going to be doing more now. The stock was at an all-time high today. Uh, but with it at an all-time high, do you think there's still room to run? Yeah, you know, we are neutral there. I would say the top pick, you know, to no surprise to your viewers from our side is Chipotle, followed by Chipotle, followed by Chipotle. In fact, I would make mention that we upgraded Duncan just last week and looking at the ticket and the frequency, the operating models and the geography, you know, a lot of that applies across all of our coverage. But in terms of Chipotle specifically, these concepts are able to grab more mind share. And we see the bigger brands actually slipping the legacy brands as the next generation brands become global brands. So when we think about Chipotle specifically beating out Taco Bell, um, it's important that on a cuisine level, and that's just on a cuisine level, that that's where you first attract the masses. And once you've done that successfully, uh, then you can become, you know, the winner in terms of the overall top 10 and be a global brand. Yeah, it's amazing to watch Chipotle go from being a kind of a phenom 10 years ago to now almost as ubiquitous as Taco Bell and, and about to perhaps be more so, like you said, uh, that it's de- dethroned the champ. Nicole, thanks so much for joining me. We always appreciate it. Thank you. Nicole Miller-Reagan with Piper Sandler. Coming up, retail also seems to be stabilizing. In fact, it's outperforming tech over the past two months. We're going to look at who's winning this season and why one analyst says bet on boots. And investors seem to be on the hunt for yield as utilities take over market leadership. We'll look at why. Stay with us. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. 
FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to The Exchange. Let's get a check on the markets right now, where they've been mixed today, broadly speaking. The Dow's up 107 points at the moment. The S&P's up seven. And the Nasdaq, which has been the laggard, is down 10. Uh, some concerns about big tech regulation in particular. We'll talk more about that next hour on Power Lunch. Check in on the sectors. In the meantime, we've got utilities, energy, financials, and materials leading the way. That's kind of a strange basket, but the kind of basket we've been seeing more of this week with energy, financials, and materials especially uh, remaining up there. On the flip side, it's communication services, consumer discretionary, those down half a percent. Uh, all of those tech-heavy uh, segments have been struggling really since early September. Here are some of the individual movers this hour. Some negative headlines pushing shares of Boeing lower. American Airlines will delay 737 MAX pilot training that was supposed to start in November. That's according to the Allied Pilots Association. Boeing's down almost 3%. Boeing also cut its forecast for new aircraft demand today, saying it expects the pandemic to hurt sales for more than a decade. We're also watching shares of Sonos and Logitech lower on a report that Apple has stopped selling wireless speakers and headphones from other companies ahead of its own product launches. Sonos down 5 percent, Logitech a little bit more than that. And Apple just announced in the past hour or so that its next product event will be held on October 13th. That's when it's expected to introduce those new 5G iPhones and perhaps some other equipment here. And finally, shares of SeaWorld are gaining on an upgrade to outperform from neutral Credit Suisse, the bank pointing to sooner-than-anticipated completion of Epic Universe in Orlando and some positive momentum from reopening in Florida. SeaWorld up nearly 8% today. And now let's get to Sue Herrera for our CNBC News update. Hi, Sue. Hello, Kelly. Good to see you. Here's what's happening at this hour, everyone. The FDA is telling developers that it wants to see at least two months of safety data before it will authorize emergency use of a COVID-19 vaccine. That would delay the availability of a vaccine until after the November election. The White House is reportedly trying to block the FDA from formally mandating that two-month wait period. Ahead of tomorrow's vice presidential debate in Utah, both Mike Pence and Kamala Harris have again tested negative for COVID-19. A plexiglass shield will be on stage in between the two candidates. An industry group says U.S. airlines will burn through $77 billion in cash in the last half of this year. That works out to about $300,000 a minute. And as bad as that is, it's lower than the burn rate this spring. And a federal judge is clearing the way for at least 80,000 COVID relief checks, totaling more than $100 million to be sent by the IRS to incarcerated people across the country. You are up to date, Kel. I'll send it back to you. All right, Sue, thank you very much. Sue Herrera. Let's turn now to housing with demand through the roof and homes in tight supply. As a result, home builder stocks have been on a tear. Take a look at the ITB, the home builder ETF, which has nearly doubled in the past six months. 
Pulte seeing the biggest gains up 120%. Lennar and DR Horton not far behind. Lennar and Pulte both also hitting all-time highs today. And construction material companies are also going strong. Like Dom mentioned off the top, Martin Marietta, Vulcan Materials, they're both up almost 20% in just the past month. And a huge jump in August home prices is showing just how hot this market is right now. But can it last? For more, let's bring in Diana Olick. Diana? Yeah, Kelly, we're now seeing home values rise at the fastest pace in two years. Prices jumped 5.9% in August annually, and we're up nearly 1% monthly. Now, they might, that may not sound like a lot, but these numbers from CoreLogic, they usually move in small fractions, not full percentage jumps. Now, a year ago, the increase was barely 5% annually. Price gains are even higher, up close to 9% at the entry-level segment of the market. So why are they so hot? Well, too much demand, not enough supply. With inventory down 17% year over year. The stay-at-home culture of the pandemic has consumers looking to upsize and get outdoors, that is, bigger suburban homes with backyards. Some of the hottest cities include Phoenix, with prices up nearly 10%, Denver, and right here in D.C. The New York metropolitan area saw prices fall, but it was in the minority. Now, top states include Idaho, Arizona, and Maine, CoreLogic economists are forecasting that prices will cool over the coming year as unemployment takes its toll on various markets, especially those with entertainment-based economies like Miami and Las Vegas. Kelly? Then you kind of answered my question, Diana, because that's that's the big thing is, you know, is this all just a one-time, you know, flight of demand that is bidding up home prices or is it the flip side of the coin of low interest rates? And if that sticks around for some time, then maybe high prices can too. Well, I got to tell you, low interest rates are not new. They've been around for a long time, several months, new record lows. And while that does give buyers more purchasing power, prices are now up so high that it's really negating that savings that you're seeing from the low mortgage rate. So it started, but it fueled those prices. And at some point, you are going to hit an affordability wall, especially in some of these very hottest cities. Yeah, it's ironic. It's one of the ways the Fed's trying to stimulate, you know, by by helping with those rates in the housing market. But the demand is almost overwhelming, even those efforts. Diana, thank you. Uh, we appreciate it. Diana Olick with the housing check for us. And coming up between last week's presidential debate and the president's COVID diagnosis, Americans have turned their focus away from issues like the ongoing tensions with China. And that could work to the superpowers benefit, according to Atlantic Council CEO Fred Kemp. He joins us next. Later, why the holidays could see a boost in spending even without another round of stimulus checks. The exchange is back in a couple. Welcome back. America's focus on President Trump's COVID infection raising concerns that China will capitalize on this opportunity to advance its own global agenda. We just learned earlier this hour that the Joint Chiefs and other military leaders are also now self-quarantining. And an op-ed on CNBC.com, Atlantic Council CEO and CNBC contributor Fred Kemp says the president's diagnosis is providing China the opportunity to make strategic gains. Fred joins me now to discuss. And yeah, I mean, what do you make of this headline as well about some military leaders now having to self-quarantine? Obviously, the, the face-off with China that you're speaking about is not going to take place over the next few weeks. Uh, but it just feels like this adds insult to injury here. Yeah, I think there are two schools of thought. One of them is that China or Russia or any adversary or competitor might use this period of time of American distraction, which we were already distracted by our elections, by COVID-19, by economic recession, but then COVID uh, hitting the president, even a higher distraction in other people, joint chiefs and others. 
Uh, does that mean they would take uh, military action toward Taiwan to end its independence, building on their gains in Hong Kong? Um, I, I, I think that's less likely. I think more likely they would see this as a breathing space to push their agenda even more to be the premier uh, global uh, leader. Uh, they're doing that by tightening control of the private sector, which currently has 60% of their GDP, 80% of their employment. But they're setting tighter rules on how private companies can operate, and they're also nationalizing. They're going to try to close the technology gaps with the United States that remain, particularly in semiconductors. Uh, they're actually looking at embargo lists as, as sort of a focus list of where they have to build out. Uh, and then uh, on top yeah. of that, uh, I think one of the things for your viewers to watch is development of uh, the RMB as an international currency and particularly accelerating work toward digital currency. So there's a lot going on and they feel they can move ahead more quickly with a distracted United States. And there's so many different angles to this, Fred. I mean, you know, the Wall Street Journal had this kind of deep dive into how China's tried to influence the United Nations through various uh, campaigns to put their uh, people at, in the head of different committees and, and that outcome. Uh, there's a political story today about how a German official tried to conceal uh, some of their relations with China so as not to uh, uh, dissuade the Chinese from doing more business there. Um, you know, in some ways, it feels like China's China's winning already. You know, there, there. Yes, of course, President Trump talks uh, toughly about the situation. Uh, to some extent, Vice B uh, President Biden does too. But what what would you want to hear out of one of these debates, for example, uh, as it relates to how to really face this threat? Uh, there is absolutely no doubt that the Trump administration has done us a favor by sharpening our focus on the debate more uh, entirely. But I think the real debate is how do you do this? How, how could we get anywhere further without our allies in Asia, without our allies in Europe, being on the same page and coordinating our policies with them? And that's what Vice President Biden says he would do a lot better. But you also have a situation where uh, more than 100 of the, the world's countries have China as their leading trading partner, including Germany, including South Korea, Japan, our allies, UAE, Saudi Arabia, while only 57 have the U.S. as a trading partner. So one way or another, this is a generational contest. And the question really is, are we in a tipping point toward China being the premier leader or can the West and democracies get their act back together after the election, irrespective of who wins and, and, and create a little bit right. more balance and, and give democracies a little bit more momentum again. How far, Fred, are we from the scenario in which China can basically tell American tech giants, for example, what to do? I mean, it reminds me of comments recently by Netflix where they were faced with a choice of doing business in the country years ago and they basically couldn't. They said, we'll live without it. And we're, you know, we've avoided a lot of issues as a result. Some of the other uh, big tech companies as well have just had to avoid it altogether. But you know, is there a situation in which China is the one calling the shots here? And if so, what does that mean? Uh, think of yourself as the front end of a generational struggle, a new Cold War, perhaps. But it's a different situation because our economies are so much more integrated than the Soviet Union, U.S. has ever been. And so what you need to do is you need to set rules of the road. The U.S. companies have a lot to lose if they lose access uh, to the Chinese market. We have a lot to lose if all of our technology and IP goes to China and we become a technological uh, uh, second 
second fiddle. So how do we actually set rules of the road where we figure out how to compete with each other, where we have to compete and will compete, but collaborate on things like climate and other things? We are not there. We're not having those kinds of conversations. Uh, and, and whoever is president is going to have to find their way there. But the issue really is allies. If you go to, you're right, China can have that kind of leverage on its own. If the U.S. comes with its allies in Asia and Europe, then it won't have that kind of leverage. All right. Fred, thank you, sir. Good to get your perspective here with so much at stake. Fred Kemp with the Atlanta Council on the U.S.-China face-off. Still ahead, the major indices are mixed today with the Dow and the S&P on pace to close higher for the fourth time in five days. Up next, one of the top 10 financial advisors, according to our annual rankings, joins us to talk how to navigate these markets. The Exchange will be right back. Welcome back to The Exchange. During the market volatility we've seen in recent weeks, investors have rotated to some more traditional safety plays. The tech sector is down slightly in the past month, while the utility sector is up 4.5%. Leading the way within that group, Duke Energy is up 12% in the past month and paying investors a yield of about 4%. American Electric, also an outperformer, up 10% with a 3.2% dividend yield. And Con Edison seeing a gain of 9% over the past month with a yield of 3.8%. Now compare that to the performance of some of the big cap tech names. Microsoft down 2%, Apple off by 5%, Amazon down 4.5% over the past month, even though some say that they are the new utilities. So why the rotation away from the high-flying tech sector and what does it tell us about investor sentiment? For some answers, we want to bring in Michelle Perry Higgins. She's a principal at California Financial Advisors. She ranked number nine on the second annual CNBC Top at Financial Advisor 100 list. Michelle, congrats and welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. This isn't as fun as being with you in the studio, but thanks for having me, Kelly. I know. We'll, we'll accept it uh, in the meantime. So yeah. let's just start with how investors should be positioned for 2020 overall. I know you guys really focus on no-load mutual funds, um, trying to kind of stay defensive. I mean, we hear a lot of these same themes coming up, but what would... What would be kind of your number one piece of advice for investors, especially as we uh, head into election or to the election itself? Kelly, I would say the number one um, advice I would have for investors right now is to stay away from what I call the anxiety rotation. We have been living in 2020 with um, just massive anxiety around everything. And I feel investors tend to often want to move their portfolios around and move from sector to sector, try to market time as we saw in and out of the market in March. Um, I'm seeing folks trying to time, do they wanna buy Trump? Do they wanna buy Biden? That is not what they should be doing right now. As we go into the next few months, um, actually in the next 60 days, um, look at your portfolio right. right now and say, okay, is my portfolio ready Today, have I pruned what I need to prune? Do I have a portfolio that's ready for the long term? Um, if you believe in the long term viability, you should not be doing this anxiety rotation. Um, presidents do not drive the stock market. P Biden's not going to drive the stock market. Trump's not going to drive the stock market. What drives the stock market, as we're seeing, stimulus packages, low interest rates, economic fundamentals. That's what drives the stock market. So if we could take yeah. away the political noise and have investors really focus on hunkering down over the next few few weeks um, and ignore that noise, they will get through this time. 
Yeah. Let me, Michelle, ask you on, on kind of a totally different note, but since you are out there in California, deal with a lot of yes. you know, high net worth clients, that sort of thing. You know, what is the state of business out there? We've heard of a lot of people who are leaving the state for a combination of different reasons from the tax climate to what's happened with the wildfires this year and kind of just COVID in general and you name it. Um, what are you experiencing in your own practice? Yeah, as someone who lost a home in the wildfires a few years ago, it has been um, a very sensitive last uh, month here in California. Um, we've been living in kind of a smoky land and um, very scary. And many of my clients are talking to me about what other options are. What do taxes look like in different in different states? What where can I save money? Can I capitalize on these great prices we have on homes right now? That, as you mentioned in your prior segment. The housing market in the Bay Area is um, exceptional right now. And so people are really looking at at their financial plans and saying, can I live somewhere else and financially be even better? Um, we at California Financial Advisors are not moving, but we are, um, you know, it, it's been a very difficult time here the last few years to watch what's gone on um, with these wildfires and, and situations. Yeah. Yeah. And I know that that makes people value your advice even more right now, you know, being able to kind of weigh all of those issues against uh, stocks. And sometimes it can feel like the stock portfolio is the last thing people want to even worry about. Uh, right. Michelle, thanks for joining me. Really right. good to see you, at least thanks, see you virtually. <laughs> okay, bye-bye. Congrats again. And you can head to CNBC.com to see the complete 2020 CNBC Financial Advisor 100 list. Uh, it's always a good topic to explore. Don't miss the CNBC FA Summit, which will bring together the country's top advisory firms, cnbcevents.com slash FA Summit. You can learn more and register for that coming up on October 20th. And still ahead here on The Exchange, it's the retail recovery that stole out this summer, but it's back on, according to one analyst. He'll join us to discuss the areas that soared in September and reveal his best ideas next. You can always catch us on the CNBC app. The Exchange is back in a couple. Welcome back. The ETF tracking retail, the XRT, has now doubled off the year's lows. And despite the industry ending the summer with a weak back-to-school selling season, my next guest says retail trends began to stabilize last month and appear to have bottomed. Joining me now on the CNBC Newsline is Ike Borshow. He's managing director at Wells Fargo Securities. Ike, it's amazing to me that that could possibly be a headline, given that was after the expiration of all the COVID relief. What do you make of it? Yeah, no. Hey, th Kelly, thanks for having me. I, I think it's really interesting. You know, our group was was a big laggard early in the year when stores closed. It made perfect sense. But I mean, the group's rallying. It's up 30 percent plus over the past couple of weeks. I think that, look, there was a lot of concern around weak store volumes uh, upon recovery. There was big mark or upon reopening. There was big markdowns from all the leftover inventory that these retailers needed to clear that was going to pressure margins. And then to your point, Back to school basically didn't happen for reasons that are pretty obvious. But I think what's interesting over the past couple weeks in September, since then, we've seen the space showing some real signs of material improvement. Um, on top of improved pricing, I think that the back to school sales actually shifted, didn't completely disappear. So you actually saw that come into September and away from August. The weather is breaking. Consumers are driving some pent up demand there. And then what I think is the most interesting that people aren't talking about yet is consumer dollars have to go somewhere. People aren't traveling. They're not spending money on experiences. They're not eating out. So some tangible goods, soft line goods, they're, they're, they're coming back. So that, that's all good news. 
Yeah, it's surprising and, and it's encouraging to hear some of the companies that screen highest here for your September rankings are familiar names, Lululemon, Nike, uh, even TJX companies, which is probably a, a break for them, given that TJ Maxx has struggled without having its locations. The number one name is Deckers. Is that am I am I right to read that that's basically an UGG play? No. So my associate, Tom Nickich, covers Deckers. I think he, he, it's actually more of a Hoka running shoe play, uh, sidecar growth brand there. But, but I'll agree with you that I think that the um, the buy side expectations are going up on a lot of these names, especially in athletic. And I think that's why you see Lulu and Nike towards the top. You know, some other names that are in there, you mentioned TJ, the off pricers. You know, we're bullish on those. That's Burlington, TJ, and Ross. But I also think that besides the obvious, you know, the off-price, the athletic names that are very consensus, I think there's some interesting value creation names that are that, that, that exist in retail. The two that are our favorite are Gap, GPS, and L Brands. I mean, these are both portfolio names, optimization names, and have had great runs, but we think have a lot more in them. Fascinating. And, and the Hokas, I know people love their Hokas. So that's, that explains uh, why Deckers is so strong. Would you recommend, I mean, it sounds like you obviously would, but for Gap and L Brands, two really tough stocks, is this a turning point? We do think so. Um, and we've been uh, vocally bullish on, on both. Uh, they've had good runs off the bottom. I think we think Gap is very undervalued when you look at it on a sum of parts analysis. I think people get overly focused on the um, struggling Gap and Banana Republic brands. We we look at the Old Navy and the Athleta as the real value drivers there. And then with L Brands, it's a similar story. Victoria's Secret and Bath and Body Works, too much focus on Victoria's, which has had a tough go of it, but is stabilizing. But we think the Bath and Body Works concept, very undervalued, not getting the love it deserves. And we think the market is beginning to figure that out you'll see more upside uh, into next year. Ike, final question. What do you make of the, how the holiday season could shape up overall? I think you're more bullish than most. Yeah, I think that it's it's a very, it's a great question. And I think it's the question that all investors are asking on the space as, as it's rallying. Um, there's very little visibility in the holiday right now. I, I know that that's, you know, not what everyone wants to hear, but it's the truth. There's so many uncertainties around uh, where's the volume going to come from? What's the election going to look like? You know, how, many, how much of these revenues are going to happen in store versus online? And what does that mean? You know, are stores going to potentially re, reshut because of COVID cases spiking? So I think it's very, very challenging. And that's why we're trying to say to people and, and our investors um, to stay selective, stay balanced, have, have, a, have a basket of winners long term, which is, again, the Nikes, yeah. the off prices, and also have some of the value names on the other side of that. Ike, thanks so much for joining us uh, with all of your data and a different read on what's going on out there. We appreciate it. Ike Borshow. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx.